I'd asked for some some thoughts on uh, what you wanted to hear, and a couple of folks, uh, interestingly enough, said First Amendment, and I thought this has been an interesting week. A um, couple of things that have transpired. Um, and I thought, you know, I'm going to touch on the First Amendment a little bit, and I'm going to use kind of a couple case studies. And tonight, I just want to warn you, uh, there's going to be more questions than there are answers. And it's going to be a mind-bending trip. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know your religious persuasion, your political persuasion. I know a number of folks in here, we run the gamut. But, but really, it's, it's kind of to pique your curiosity and challenge some of your thoughts uh, to push you a little bit, think outside the box. Some of the folks that I'm going to have uh, share, I'll read about them. They're not people that you would normally probably uh, subscribe to or listen to. I find them fascinating and insightful. I'm going to show you a video in a moment that uh, um, is very controversial currently in, in Christendom. Um, I have been part of that whole issue, and I'll explain that when we get to it. But it all revolves around this. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people to peaceably assemble and to petition the government for redress of grievances against the government. Better put, you see that Congress shall make no law uh, respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech, press, or the ability to assemble, or to petition. And um, the reason why I bring this up is because um, I'm going to show you a video that um, has... You, you guys have seen that I've shown Prager videos, yeah? Well, this Prager video came out, and um, it's... Uh, and, and it... And it it ran. I know a number of folks that are on the board at Prager University. Uh, Dennis Prager, his wife Sue, are uh, are not professing Christians. They don't hold to uh, my faith. They're. Uh, I think Dennis would consider himself Orthodox Jewish, um, and Sue as well. They're friends. Um, I have great respect for them. I've traveled to Israel with them. I've uh, done a number of events with them around the country. Uh, I think what they're doing is remarkable. Um, and I know a couple of people on their board, one in particular is a very dear friend, spoke to uh, her husband this week. Uh, he was involved in the SpaceX. Um, all of his um, gadgetry was on that. And he said, say a prayer for me that it, it, it's a su- successful launch or I'm going to lose a ton of money. And if it's successful, I'm going to make a ton of He made a ton of money. Um, but as a result of this next video, uh, and I haven't been able to confirm it, but I'm pretty sure it's happened. Um, I think Prager University has a budget of about $15 million annually. And as a result of this video, I think they've lost $6 million. Uh, deeply offended many in the evangelical community. And, uh, and I want you to be challenged by it. Um, and, and at the conclusion, I'll, I'll just let you hear it and you process it yourself. And um, we'll go from there. So let's show the first video. Oh, let me, before we do that, hang on. Uh, let me just read to you um, this. No, I'm not going to read to you. Show the video. It'll speak for itself. I'm a Christian, a patriotic American, and a free market, shrink the government conservative who also happens to be gay. What I mean by that is my values define me. While my sexual orientation sometimes feels more like, well, a footnote, literally, in fact. I came out as gay in a footnote in my book, 
End of discussion. When it comes to my political beliefs, my orientation is only one part of the story. It's not the totality of who I am. Some unimaginative leftists like to claim that this qualifies me as a self-hating gay person. This is so boring. That intellectual laziness only underscores my point. Far too often, people are sorted by their gender, or their skin color, or their sexual orientation, or any other immutable characteristic that has nothing to do with ideas or values. To be candid, in my day-to-day -day life and work, I spend a lot more time thinking and writing about the failures of Obamacare, for example, than I do about LGBT issues, whatever that term might mean on any given day. Just like any conservative, I want taxes low, the military strong, and don't even get me started on single-payer health care or late-term abortion. I'm a conservative because when I think about these issues critically, I usually end up on the right end of the spectrum. It's that simple. Here's the thing. I fully recognize how fortunate I am to live in a time and a country where I can be openly gay and live a normal life. And that's in large part thanks to the hard work of gay rights activists who've paved the way for people like me. People who had it much harder than I do. And people who likely wouldn't share my politics. I am genuinely grateful to them. But it's a new era now. Why ostracize members of our community who don't toe the left-wing political line? Exit polling shows that in the last four general elections, between 14 and 29 percent of LGBT voters pulled the lever for the GOP. That's a lot of us. Now, does that mean that we all support every element of the party's platform? Absolutely not. In fact, I know that many conservatives, including some here at PragerU, don't see eye to eye with me on all of these questions. And yet, here I am, making a PragerU video, which perfectly illustrates another really important point. Conservatives are often much more tolerant of dissenting views than those who fancy themselves the torch carriers of open-mindedness. Nope. Cross the left on a hot-button social issue, and you're out. You see, some on the left believe that they're entitled to control the thoughts or votes of certain groups of people, namely minorities and so-called victim groups. For some, it comes down to a cynical calculation. Without the overwhelming support of those groups, the Democrats would win very few elections. That's why the left lashes out so viciously at anyone who wanders off their assigned reservation. I suspect conservative women and Hispanics and African Americans know exactly what I'm talking about. The truth is, the left isn't entitled to a damn thing. To paraphrase my co-author and friend Mary Catherine Hamm, we didn't get liberated in order to be told by liberal activists precisely what we're allowed to think or how we must vote. A free-thinking, free citizen of a free country is not obliged to believe anything because someone else believes he or she ought to think, or ought to vote, or ought to rank his or her priorities a certain way. Look, I get it. Many other gay people approach these issues and their voting criteria differently, and I respect that. That's their call, even if it's not how I choose to operate. What's the phrase again? Live and let live? Why has that been turned on its head into agree or else? Let's debate issues and stop trying to punish wrong thinking. Like I said, I'm a Christian, a patriotic American, and a free market, shrink the government conservative who happens to be gay. That's how I choose to rank my priorities. 
You know what that's called? It's called progress. I'm Guy Benson for Prager University. So uh, Prager University lost $6 million on that video. And uh, their, their desire was to reach into the world of the millennials. Um, and the millennials have been raised with this concept that love trumps hate. Love wins. And if you're not aware of that or you're not understanding of that, you have um, no understanding of the millennial culture. Uh, this is a letter from a dad uh, whose son uh, had written him. And it was a millennial child writing his dad who happened to be uh, an ordained minister. He said, Dad, I know you have a ton of other things to do, but if you get a moment, I'm interested in what you think. After a, a big debate on Facebook and also discussing a topic with someone who was gay and considering all the things that are going on politically, I'm puzzled. I believe that love can overcome anything. This is millennial mindset. But what are you supposed to do with a kid like the one in the Internet article? Why do people feel gay? It would seem that God didn't make them that way because Levitical law and other verses seem to condemn homosexuality. If someone says he's gay and that being gay is what makes him happy, what do you do? Just let them be gay so they can be happy? Do you let them suffer the consequences of their actions and do not worry about it? Is it judging them to say uh, that what they feel and are doing is wrong? Let me see if I can lay out some thoughts that might be helpful, son. First off, feelings are not right or wrong. They just are. Feelings are not sin. We can be angry and sin not. Anger is not right or wrong, but what we do with it can be. I can take my feeling and act on it in a productive way, or I can act on it in an unproductive and harmful, sinful way. I can act on it in a way that just affects me, or perhaps it has no effect, or has an effect upon someone else. I'm not responsible for the impulse or stimulus that produces a response in me, the feeling, but I am for what I do with it. So the fact that someone feels attracted to someone of the same sex or the opposite sex, or as goofy as it is, even an animal, those feelings or attractions have been around since the dawn of time. The question is, where's the impulse coming from? What do I do about it? Is it helpful, constructive? Does it build me up and bring me clarity or does it author in me confusion? When I see something that someone else has and I want it, that's a feeling, uh, a simple want or a desire. What if the thing I want belongs to someone else? What if I don't have the means to get one for myself? What do I do then? I want it. I must have it. It's not fair that they have it and I don't. I will just take it. That's called coveting or conspiring inside to take something from someone else because our longing to have it, which can lead to stealing. The impulse of wanting it is merely an impulse, but what I do with it can become helpful or harmful, not just to me, but also to others. But if I had it, I would be happy. Okay, but does that make it right? Not in and of itself, but it's just natural for me to want that. It is. Is it? I don't know. It is just... It just is. It's an impulse. The fact that you want it or would be happy if you had it doesn't make it right or wrong, uh, not in and of itself. Is it right for me to take it? Not if it belongs to someone else. That's stealing. For me to harbor the desire and wanting what belongs to someone else, the longing to have what the act of stealing can produce, starts to fall into the realm of coveting, something that the Bible says is wrong. That's one of the clear thou shalt nots. I'm not supposed to covet my neighbor's wife, nor his donkey, etc. I'm not supposed to steal. The Bible says adultery. Sex with someone else's wife is wrong. The Bible says fornication. Sex outside of marriage, before marriage is wrong. The Bible says sex with animals is wrong. The Bible says homosexuality is wrong. 
Why? Well, the last two are sins against the laws of nature. Why is homosexuality a sin against the law of nature? I'm just reading a letter, by the way. Don't get upset with me. Because if practiced by the entire species, it would lead us to our extinction. Just because I can do that with my body doesn't make it right or natural. Is the person wrong? No, the person is a person who has value, who is worthy of love, who should be respected. Are their actions wrong? Could be. Who says? Who has authority to declare that? Well, I believe in God and in the Bible, and despite the anger, angst, and desire of many to declare otherwise or say it's wrong or archaic, the Bible is clear on this. Homosexuality is not new. Heterosexuality is not archaic. The arguments and demands that we just accept and declare their actions is right. Sorry, Uh, I'm going to line up with what God says on this. The laws of God and the laws of nature are not to be broken. They won't be, but we will. So why does someone have those feelings? There can be a thousand reasons. I think the feelings stem from an innate desire to be loved. When we are little children, we need our heart filled with the love of a mother and a father. We need both. That's healthy and helps us make us whole. But when that little tank doesn't get filled and it goes unmet or somehow gets wounded or worse, even abused, we can get warped and look like uh, and, and look to have righteous desires fulfilled in unrighteous ways. Many children are the victims of others' mistreatment or neglect. Our sense, our radar, the way in which we interpret love, our longing or need for love, all those can be healthy and lead to a natural and right and good attractions, or they can get warped, damaged and shut down or confused. Uh, homosexuality is just one of the myriad of ways we can get bent or warped. People get messed up in heterosexual ways as well. Sin and damage are equal opportunists and exploiters. Hurt people hurt other people, and the cycle of pain often gets passed along. Sadly, it's the little innocent ones who get trampled. They don't have the means to stop it. They have no idea why the mistreatment is happening to them. They don't know how to process it, so it gets buried as part of a coping mechanism. And if it's left untreated, it breeds confusion. A little kid's first impulse when his parents divorce is, I must have done something. And they end up blaming themselves. The same is true for little ones who have been sexually abused. Attempting to silence the noise inside, they conclude they are to blame in some way or they brought it on themselves and the bondage seeps into their sense of self. Most people are not good at talking about their pain. Families often live silent lives of deep, unprocessed pain. Is it any wonder we emerge a bit confused and a lot messed up? So the impulse isn't wrong, but why is it there? What is the craving? How is it impacting me? What is it drawing me to? What is the diagnosis of my real need? Uh, What's there behind my want or feeling? Do I have any understanding of why it's there? And what do I do about it? Again, feelings are not wrong, but what I do with them can be. Do I think people are just created this way? No, I don't believe that God creates us this way. He would not create us with a particular sex and genitalia that we have and then create us with the warpage that desires the very thing that is opposite of what is normal and natural. The Bible very pointedly declares God is not the author of confusion. To lay blame at his feet and to say that God created me that way is a convenient way to dodge any culpability. I have no choice. It's not my fault. I'm not responsible. It must be okay, natural, and right. Why? Just because. Because I think I have always felt this way, and thus I must have been created with this. I don't believe that that is correct, son. God is simply not the author of confusion. We can try to redefine that if we want, but we do not, but we do so to our own confusion and destruction. We are free to do that. It's, we are free to, to do that. It's just not helpful, but we are free to, but we are free to do so. 
Neither God nor the laws of the land are forcing anyone to think a certain way. But I want it so bad that I will just declare it right, okay? But that doesn't make it true. That just tells me the depth of your desire and the need for you to validate it. You don't feel okay and you desperately want to and don't know how to change or perhaps don't want to and thus you need to redefine what will make it okay. So what if I am just so angry I want to kill someone? Well, unless I've been attacked and am acting in self-defense, it's wrong, period. If acted upon, it will uh, be deemed murder. So acting on it simply because of the strength of impulse doesn't justify it. It explains why we do it, but it doesn't make it right. Someone who is gay or has homosexual attractions will say, but how is what I want hurting anyone? Well, I know that it is the usual defense that what we do doesn't have any effect on people. While that may be true if you're the only one living on a deserted island, which still doesn't make the actions right, it is not true for someone who is living in society. Even if we think what we do is private and that our actions don't actually impact others, they do. I'm not sure any of us can really know the full outcome and effect of our actions to declare that they don't. Most everything I do affects those around me in some way or another. Uh, That's where the Bible says, do not lean on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he'll make your path straight. That includes this area as well. Just because someone feels it is just the way they are and that it is not hurting anyone, it is not wisdom to lean on your own understanding. It seems we have supernatural abilities when it comes to justifying and rationalizing just about anything when that's what we want, but that doesn't make it right. To declare that right and wrong actually exist, you have to acknowledge that there is a standard set by some authority by which those things are determined. You're free to declare there is no God, and even if there is, I don't care what he thinks or what he says, I'm just going to do my own deal. But the Bible says that those who choose that path have chosen to suppress the truth. This is out of Romans 1, 16 through 2, 16. Really, read it. And figure out what it says plainly and clearly about this stuff. Some find it hard, full of judgment, and even say it is hate speech. I don't. It is hard, but I think it's just plain true, and and to be embraced, and when we are not fighting against it, is actually very encouraging and full of promise, commending those who are seeking to do what is right and honorable. When your desire is to do what is right, the Bible is your friend, not your enemy. If you just want to do your deal, well, read the whole passage. The ending will provide an important balance and might surprise you. Romans 1.16 starts off, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, means good news. Ask yourself, what does the gospel mean? It's good news. Okay, but good news about what? Why is it good news? For who? Most of us do not know or take the time to discover, but you need to. I could tell you what it is, but it'll be uh, far more valuable if you figure it out. Take a concordance and your Bible and look it up every reference for gospel. Figure out how the Bible defines what it is and what it does. Once you have a sense of what the gospel means, the next part of verse 16 has, it says very plainly, it is the power of God. That's the reason you don't have to be ashamed. The gospel is not empty words. It has power to bring salvation. That is another good word to study. It's not just eternal life, as in when I die, it's health, healing, wholeness, fullness, peace, restoration, something real and lasting, progressive both now and in the ever-growing greater capacity. So when I know the gospel, it is the power of God to bring health and wholeness. For who? Everyone who believes. That means nobody's left out because it is true. If I will embrace it and put my trust in it and build my life on the foundation, that unlocks the power for it to happen. Verse 16 continues, For in it what? In believing in the gospel, the truth of as God has declared it, the righteousness of God, what God says is right, good and true, not just words, but reality, 
the presence of him being right there with us to fully embrace and enjoy is revealed from faith to faith, meaning it grows in progressive manner. And I hear it and receive it as true. That's what the Bible says is the key to life. The righteous man shall live by faith. I'm almost finished. That's how we learn, grow, walk uh, all of this out in our daily existence and actual experience life. Verse 18 then gives an indictment against those who fight against that. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So what is the wrath of God? Is that just God being angry or mad? No. It is the activity of righteousness. Uh, Excuse me. It is the activity of a righteous, jealous, in a good way, God, who is going to take action against those that are trying to destroy life and that which God loves. God's wrath would be like your dad becoming a big, strong grizzly bear and attacking something that has come to hurt you, my son. My wrath is being revealed in a desire to protect what I love from being harmed by that which is not like me. It's not that God has a rule and is offended that someone disregards it or doesn't like it. It decides that they will just define things different. God is our creator. We are created in his image and likeness. We are the pinnacle of all created order, the greatest of all his activities. Each of us is fearfully and wonderfully made. We are meant to be like him. We are his kids. He is our dad. He is the dad. He is our dad. He's my dad. We are created to be like him. And God is taking issue with the things that are asserting themselves against that, that is, what ungodliness and unrighteousness of man are doing. It's declaring something different than what is. God is not jealous in the insecure way that we are. His jealousy is exercised on my behalf because of his love for me. He doesn't want something to destroy me. If we only see God's wrath through the lens of punishment, we completely misconstrue who he is and what his heart is. His wrath is not the absence of his love, but rather the very expression of it for me, not against me. His wrath rises to contend with whatever rears its ugly head and is seeking to destroy us. His wrath is not so much to punish someone for doing it, doing it wrong. It's his coming to set things right. Now, and that says, love dad. And that's a letter that a, a dad wrote to his son who had these questions about his generation. You see Guy Benson and, and the idea of Dennis and Sue Prager is they wanted to reach uh, into culture and, and talk about this idea of an entire culture that is growing in our society uh, and, and why, why there is a gay community, why is there a transgender community, gay, lesbian, transgender where did this come from? And this is something we'll explore next week as we go through this. But to lose $6 million, primarily from, I would say, the Christian community as a result of this video, the reason why is because the Christians who funded it see two contradictions. One is that Guy Benson says to himself, I am a Christian. That's number one. And then he says, I'm gay. Now, I believe you can be Christian and gay. Now, you might want to walk out right now. There's two aspects. One is what they call justification, just as if I never sinned, and the other is sanctification. God catches his fish before he cleans them. Otherwise, none of you would be here. Okay. So we have these areas in our life, and they come into submission to God's word. Is Guy saying that the two can operate together, and God is content with that? What that would be is, though he declares himself politically conservative, scripturally, theologically, he considers himself to be substantially liberal. You understand that? So the evangelical Christian community that holds to the inerrancy of God's word separates. 
Now, politics is done by addition and multiplication, not by division and subtraction. And what, what Dennis Prager and Sue Prager are trying to do is to open people up to these concepts that will transform culture. They reached a little far on this one and alienated a large segment that they didn't completely understand, meaning the evangelical Christian community, which is probably their largest supporters. Is everyone clear on that so far? So, you know, I, th- these, are, these are things that we have to contend with in culture if we're to move culture. Um, I want to show you, so for example, let's say, let's say that Guy Benson is correct. You can be completely gay and completely Christian and the two operate side by side. But then you have another woman, which you're going to see in a moment. Her name is Baronelle Stutzman. She, her case is, I think, gone before the Supreme Court, is going before the Supreme Court. She lost her floral business. Uh, take a look at this video, uh, Baronelle Stutzman. A religious freedom fight getting national attention after a Christian florist refused to provide flowers for a same-sex wedding because of her beliefs. Trace Gallagher is live in our West Coast newsroom to tell us the story. Hi, Trace. Shannon Baronel Stutzman is a florist who employs gay people and serves gay clients. In fact, the gay couple at the center of this fight were longtime customers, but she refused to provide flowers for their wedding because she believes marriage is between a man and a woman. When the ACLU sued on behalf of the couple and the Washington State Attorney General filed a consumer protection lawsuit against her, Stutzman filed a counter lawsuit. But a Superior Court judge has now ruled against her, saying the First Amendment protects religious beliefs, but not necessarily actions based on those beliefs. So now the same-sex couple and the state are allowed to sue her for personal assets like her house and bank account. Alliance Defending Freedom, the religious freedom group defending Stutzman, says the Attorney General is using the full power of his office to personally and professionally destroy her. The Attorney General has agreed to settle the case for a $2,000 penalty if Stutzman agrees not to discriminate in the future. The AG says, quote, my primary goal has always been to bring about an end to the defendant's unlawful conduct and to make clear that I will not tolerate discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. But Stutzman compares the deal to the one Judas struck, saying, quote, I certainly don't relish the idea of losing my business, my home, and everything else that your lawsuit threatens to take from my family, but my freedom to honor God in doing what I do best is more important. Shannon. All right, Trace, thank you so much. Joining us now for her very first television interview, Baronelle Stutzman and her attorney, Kristen Wagner. Great to see you both. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having us. Uh, all right, Baronelle, I want to ask you, first of all, this customer was a longtime customer. I mean, you had a friendly relationship. You had done a lot of services with him. Why did you decide that you had to say no in this respect? And, and was it difficult for you to tell him that? It was very difficult for me to tell Rob that I couldn't do his wedding. Uh, I love Rob. He's, uh, he's very special to me. But because of my relationship with Jesus Christ teaches me that marriage is between a man and a woman, I, I couldn't do his flowers and, and create something that was special for him because it would, it would dishonor Christ. Did you have any idea you would end up where you are today when you made that decision? No, because Robin, when Rob came in and, and told me he was getting married, and I told him the reason I couldn't do his wedding, uh, we talked about how he got engaged, and we talked about his mom, and maybe his mom could walk him down the aisle, and he asked me if I had any other floors that I could recommend, and I did recommend three, because I knew they'd do a good job for him, and I knew he wanted something special. And we hugged each other, and he left. <laughs> 
And from what I understand, he was able to get services elsewhere from, from one of the folks that you recommended. Um, but Kristen, this snowballed into something um, for a lot of people would be very unexpected from that conversation that you think is a, a friendly um, refusal to participate for very private reasons. Yes, the Attorney General contacted the couple. Um, they didn't file the initial complaint. The Attorney General took it on after reading reports in the media. And the Attorney General has relentlessly pursued Baranel ever since. The court's decision, as well as the Attorney General's actions, are sending a very clear, unmistakable message to Baranel and anyone like her, which is that if you dare to decline, um, the government will bring about your personal and your professional ruin if you don't help celebrate same-sex marriage. And Bernal, they, they offered to make you a deal. They said, you pay this fine, but also stop refusing specific weddings, and we'll call it a day, and it's all over. And you said? No. Uh, it's not about the money. It's about freedom. It's about my eight kids and our 23 grandchildren and, and the future. And now, uh, there's not a price on freedom. You, you can't buy my freedom. And if it's, it's me now, but tomorrow it's going to be you. you got to wake up. Do you think people get that? Do you think maybe hearing your story, seeing a real person and knowing this is how these policies play out, um, you know, we talked about it wasn't possibly that you would just be out of business, but we're talking about a decision by the Attorney General here, the State Attorney General, that it sounds like they could come after everything you have personally as well. They're talking about bullying me into doing something that is against my faith. They can't do that. They can, they can take away, they can get rid of me, but they can't get rid of God. Do you think that there is a way to coexist? Do you think we'll come to a solution where um, you can have your religious beliefs but still have friendly relationships with people that you disagree with and there's space for everybody to operate in that without anyone getting sued? That would be my hope. That would be my hope, yes. All right, well, quickly, do you, I, I'm assuming you plan an appeal. We will appeal. There's not just the right of uh, under the First Amendment for her free exercise of religion, but free expression. She's an artist. There's a lot at stake here. Kristen Bernal, thank you so much, both of you, for coming in. Thank you. So, uh, interesting video. Um, one of her staunchest supporters and a defender is Guy Benson. Uh, another staunch supporter of hers is this man. He was born Milo Hanrahan Yannanopoulos. He was uh, born and raised in Kent, England. His father, Nicholas Hanrahan, is half Greek and half Irish descent. He has said that his mother, who is British, is of Jewish descent. Yannanopoulos claims his father wants, wanted to divorce his mother while she was pregnant with him. However, his parents remained together for six more years before divorcing. He described his biological father as terrifying, remarking at one point, I would think if my dad is just... If my dad is just a doorman, why do we have such a nice house? And then I saw, I saw it on The Sopranos. His biological father uh, moved after the divorce to St. Ives in Cornwall, where he settled with his new Jamaican wife. Raised by his mother and her second husband, Yannanopoulos stated that he did not have a good relationship with his stepfather. Yannanopoulos has spoken of how his stepfather would beat him up. In a previous interview, he told The Times, My mother never really stopped uh, that stuff happening with my stepdad. She just let it go on. I don't want to go on too much into it. It's ancient history, but I did not have a happy time. As a teenager, Yannanopoulos lived with his paternal grandmother, Petronella, who regularly took him for high tea at Claridge's and whose surname he later adopted. Recalling their relationship, he said, 
She, my grandmother, was by far the first person to twig that I was gay. My mother was awful about it. My father was surprisingly understanding, but Nana showed just the right amount of acceptance and concern. Yannopoulos was educated at Simon Langton Grammar School for Boys in Canterbury, from which he said he was expelled. He attended the University of Manchester, but dropped out before graduating. And he then read English at Wolfson College, Cambridge, but was sent down in 2010. During 2012 interview, he said of dropping out, I tried to tell myself I'm in good company, but ultimately it doesn't say great things about you unless you go on to terrific success in your own right. A practicing Roman Catholic, Yannanopoulos states, his maternal grandmother was Jewish, which puts him at odds with a neo-Nazi adherence in the alt-right movement. Yannanopoulos is a U.S. resident alien on an O-1 visa status. Yannanopoulos married his long-term African-American boyfriend in Hawaii in September 2017. The couple prefer at present to keep the full identity of Yannanopoulos' husband a secret. He is a staunch supporter of Baronel Stutzman, and I want to show you uh, this video of Milo Yannanopoulos. Can I ask you um, another one? I'm not a Christian myself, but uh, Christianity is is normally posited as a, um, uh, a faith that's anti-gay. I mean, we have the uh, gay and lesbian Mardi Gras every year in Sydney, and it wouldn't, uh, a year wouldn't go by when there's not a float mocking Christianity, so the sisters of perpetual indulgence running up and down the street. Uh, is that your view as well? Is Christianity uh, an anti-gay faith? Christianity is not an anti-gay faith, certainly not in the way that Islam is, although, of course, it's perfectly acceptable to say that one is, and nobody will dare say that the other is. Uh, I quite like the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, to be completely honest and clear, because they're so funny and bitchy and clever and waspish. That's the gay culture I like, and that's dying. There's not enough of that about. I just wish that they would pick better targets, because, frankly, a nice Christian couple who don't want to bake a wedding cake for some lesbians seems to me to be a far weaker and easier low-hanging fruit target for comedy than jihadis, who are intrinsically hilarious. The clothes that the women wear are funny. I mean, I'm sorry to say it, but the burqa is funny. You know, many of the things that Muslims do are funny. Many of the things that, you know, that ISIS is up to, the sort of homoeroticism of them all, you know, on a, on a, on a hill in Raqqa with, their, the, with the guns out, you know, and, and firearms. Uh, you know, there's something funny about all of that, but no gay people are brave enough to address the subject. Well, I try to because I think it's funny. And I think, you know, sometimes when horrific things happen, humans is the only way really to deal with that. Uh, as far as the supposed incompatibility between Christianity and uh, gays, all I can really guess at is that the gay people who say this don't know many Christians or had bad parents. Because, just speaking historically, there was a time in Ireland, in the UK, probably in every, every uh, country with a sizable pro pro proportion of Catholics, when being gay was against the law, when the government would even chemically castrate you in the case of, uh, of Turing in, in, in England. Who, what was the one institution the that would take gay people in? Ask them not to practice because they, you know, didn't agree with the, uh, the, the they, because they disagreed with the sin, but they loved the sinner. That was the Catholic Church and the clergy. Now, uh, to my mind, I mean, in my experience, Christians and in particular Catholics, which is the, you know, how I, how I was raised, in particular Catholics, have nothing but sympathy, compassion, respect, and understanding for people who are struggling, as they see it, with sin. That's quite a different approach to homosexuality to the one from Islam, which it seems to me to, to be more readily uh, about throwing people off roofs and uh, mowing down gay clubs in Florida than saying, you know what, I'd rather not bake a wedding cake or I'd rather not send pieces to your wedding. 
Christianity, I think, at least in the last couple of hundred years, and certainly in any of the lifetimes of anybody alive watching this program, is characterised best by compassion, understanding, and uh, sympathy. Islam, I think, if you want to talk about a religion that is profoundly antithetical and hostile to homosexuality, I think is better characterised in the life, uh, lifetimes of everybody watching this programme as hateful, violent, homophobic, uh, and, and, and a horror everywhere it appears. Uh, now, some viewers are going to find that a very strong statement, but I'll just leave you with a couple of statistics to think about. 100% of British Muslims, polled by Gallup, they did 1,001 Muslims, and this is just a couple of years ago. And this is not Muslims in Syria or Raqqa. You know, this is not Muslims anywhere in the Middle East. This is British Muslims. 100% of them believe that homosexuality is an unacceptable lifestyle choice. Imagine what the percentage is for uh, Catholics or for Christians. Don't think it's 100. And 52% of those Muslims believe that homosexuality, that homosexual sex rather, should be made illegal. That I should go to prison for my love life. Now, these are, these are statistics you will not find anywhere in the Christian world. And so if I speak occasionally strongly about Islam, I simply encourage people to return to the numbers, look at the data, and when you see, uh, as I do, and laugh, as I do, at the absurdity in gay pride parades of queers for Palestine, and consider that 96% of Palestinians believe that homosexuality is an unacceptable lifestyle choice, ask yourself, is it the political left or the political right that is really acting in gay people's interests? And ask yourself... If Christianity is so bad, where are the Christians murdering gays? Because I can find you a hell of a lot of Muslims doing it. Christianity has some, you know, unfortunate history in many ways, as all religions do. But uh, to suggest that it represents a threat to gay people living in the West is ridiculous. And to ridicule it, to pick it out, to single it out for, um, for, for uh, you know, for the sorts of demeaning humour that happens at Gay Pride, not only ignores so much of a better target, but is also simply too easy. Gay people are better than that. You want to come to the world with ridicule and fun and mischief and whimsy and satire and waspishness. You want, you know, do all of those things that make that make camp gay culture fantastic. There's a much bigger target out there. Have some bravery and do it. Good. Now, I, that's a mind bender for probably a lot of the people present in the room. Um, Milo Yiannopoulos finds himself to be a professing Christian and a practicing homosexual. Guy Benson, same thing. I happen to degree, uh, disagree with both of them, but I'm grateful for the stand that they take in defense of Baron L. Stutzman. That's what's amazing about the United States of America. That brings us back. And I want to go back to the First Amendment. Here we go. Thank you. Congress shall make no law respecting establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of people to peaceably assemble and to petition the government for redress of grievances. So nowhere in there does it say one religion will dominate the political landscape and you'll have the freedom to practice yours. But when does that break down? When is it not permissible? And so I wanted to challenge us a little bit, especially with the position that Milo Yiannopoulos took when he spoke about Islam. While Islam looks and is touted as a religion, it is in fact a political system. The aspects of Islam that make it a political system are in the way it insists that the word of Islam is spread. All religions spread the word, but only Islam demands conversion or death. This is out of the Quran. Say to those who have disbelieved, if they cease from disbelief... 
Their past will be forgiven and fight them until there is no more uh, fatna, disbelief, or polytheism, i.e. worshiping others besides Allah. And the religion worship will be all, uh, will all be for Allah alone in the whole world. But if they cease worshiping others besides Allah, then certainly Allah is an all-seer of what they do. So the idea is God is very straightforward about this. Not we Muslims, not subjective. The, the Sharia law is very clear about it. The punishment for homosexuality, bestiality, or anything like that is death. We don't make any, any excuses about that. It's not our law. It's the Quran. This is a, uh, a very well-revered uh, um, uh, uh, Muslim cleric. And this is the picture of what Milo Yiannopoulos was speaking of. That's uh, homosexuals being thrown off of buildings. And then you have, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So if a religion declares adherence and no other religion is permitted, is that a religion or is it a law? Hello. So that's Sharia law. It isn't a religion, it's a political process. And it's contrary to the U.S. Constitution. So here in America, you have what's interesting, the progressive movement is a religion disguised as a political formula. Sharia law is a political formula disguised as a religion. Two work hand in hand. And so that's why you have gays for Islam. Yet the... The craziness of it is that's where homosexuals are being killed. And you have not the Christian community speaking out in culture about that or defending Baronel Stutzman. What you have is the homosexual community that considers themselves conservative defending in culture the right of Christians to practice their faith. Is anyone here like baffled by that? Try Googling that. It just, you can't Google that. And why is it? Because those who have, who, have, who have had their lives threatened understand persecution. And so what you're seeing is a breakout in this community that they're starting to realize what we have in this country and this system we've been given by this mission statement of the Declaration of Independence and our bylaws, the U.S. Constitution, is the greatest form of protection for individual rights the world has ever seen. Now, when does somebody's bend start to override that is the beauty of the system we've designed, that you have a right and a left, and you have a lower house and an upper house where you can debate these issues. And I can sit down with someone like Guy Benson and say, Guy, okay, you're conservative here, but you're liberal there, and you and I both know it. And don't tell me you're conservative in your, in your scriptural approach, because you're not. This is what the scripture said. You saw the letter from the father that wrote to his son. This is reality. I can sit down with Milo Yiannopoulos, have that same conversation, but guess what it is? It's called civil it's called civil. But to remove a constitutional republic is to tell other people we're not seeking education as much as indoctrination. Silence their voice, shut them down, take their shop, take their house, take everything they own. And you have citizens in our country that you disagree with, probably, that are defending your right. Right? 
Do you understand that this is a cultural war for the gift we've been given of a constitutional republic? Now, I don't, I have more questions than I have answers tonight. Probably you do as well. And I showed you these things to really challenge this idea. Why do we have a First Amendment? For the free exchange of ideas. And one of the things, I, there's, there's so much I disdain about Milo Yiannopoulos, but there's so much I appreciate about him because he's one of those people that will get into the middle and he, his whole job is to incite what is considered political correctness and he attacks it and is threatened by the right and the left. But he calls it for what it is. It's suppression of the exchange of ideas. Do you realize that we can, we can engage in culture and move culture? And you have folks like Baronel Stutzman. She's doing that. But it comes at a great cost. And I'll tell you, Milo Yiannopoulos faces death threats everywhere he goes and needs security guards because the, not only does the left want to kill him, so does the right. I find it fascinating. And what does the Christian community do? We take $6 million from Guy Benson, or excuse me, Prager University. In the free, but that's the free exchange of ideas. You don't represent me anymore, and I, there's, there's another area I'd like to invest my money. And that's fair. And Dennis Prager gets that. And he's, he's realizing, so what did he do? He took off the title of his thing. If you go on Prager University, he used to say, Christian, conservative, um, and gay. Or Christian, yeah, conservative and gay. And they took out the Christian part. Trying to maintain the funding. Because we are in a society where you get to move what is yours for the free exchange of ideas. And you make choices and those choices have consequences. And we're debating the free exchange of ideas. That's the beauty of the First Amendment. And one of the things we're going to talk about next week is this idea of what Augustine called the libido dominandi, this, this desire to dominate. It's where we get the term libido. And we're going to go through, and, and some of you don't want a Bible study, but it's necessary for the understanding of the issue. We're going to take a look, and I want you to read it when you get a chance. Genesis 9, about when Noah gets drunk. And we're going to take a look at that. And we're going to have an interesting time together on Valentine's Day. So, I don't know that I want to answer questions tonight. <laughs> yes. The question is, can one be a Christian not take a stand on homosexuality because all the scientific evidence is not out? Yeah, well, I guess I should say more particularly homosexual marriage. Well, I would just say then, what is your view of Scripture? Because Scripture is clear. Scripture is clear. Science may not have ad advanced to examine it, but Scripture is clear. So it's, it's basically your view of Scripture. Because Scripture... It is what it is. It says what it says. There are portions as a minister I would love to skip over. I really would. I'd love to skip over divorce. I'd love to skip. I mean, I can think of a thousand of them I'd like to skip over. 
But that's the scripture. And I teach through its entirety. So that's where Guy Benson and I would, because I'd say to Guy, what is your view of scripture? Does it say what it says? I mean, Romans 1 is very clear. So it, it's, it's the examination of that. Now, can you be a Christian that believes in the inerrancy of Scripture and not take a stand on homosexual? Yeah. 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 But don't complain if the culture shifts in your, in your lifetime. So I don't know if that answers your question, but yes, here. Same-sex attraction. Let's just say that. How's that? Well, I, I, okay, let me, I'll, I'll go further. I, I believe that you can be a Christian and commit fornication. I believe you can be a Christian and commit adultery. I believe you're, you can be a Christian and, and, and be engaged in a homosexual relationship. Yes, I do. It's, it, we're all bound by that. Now... I would say that we have to walk circumspectly and examine our life before the Lord. And I'm, I'm absolutely in agreement that if you're, in, if, if you're at a place where you're saying, this isn't a sin and I'm operating, you're, you're deceived. And you don't know the power of God. I would agree with that. Hang on just a second. Let me answer the question. That you, you, you don't know the scriptures completely. And, and the idea is, like the Father's letter that I wrote, do you want the fullness or do you want to compromise for the sake of what you want? So you can, you, you can put that aside and subject the truth to pursue what you want and to act on your feeling. But the reality is, if the word of God is the word of God, and we examine our life, there are things in there, and I've struggled. I'm 53 years old. I would like to say that the sins that easily beset me have gone away. They haven't. Now, am I practicing those? There are times where I am doing great, and then something hits me, and I'm like, oh, wretched man that I am. The Apostle Paul said, I'm a sinner, and he finishes his last book by saying, I'm the chief of sinners. You think he would have improved. So my, my point is, there is justification, sanctification, where we are in that process. I'm not going to dismiss or challenge his, his Christianity, but what I will say is, you cannot say that God approves of what I'm doing if you believe the Bible to be True. Yeah, that's what I said earlier, too. Okay, uh, Agnes, and I'll go over here. Agnes, over there first. Okay, yes. So the question is, uh, the First Amendment, uh, you can almost describe anything as a religion. We have the Church of Satan, we have the Church of Atheists, we have the Church of... And they describe them, and that's been going on for the entirety. And, and on Sunday, we studied the Onida community, which was the very first time that the term free sex was coined in 1848 by uh, uh, John Humphrey Noyes. And he was a Yale graduate, seminary graduate, um, 
And he, he came up with some funky stuff. He, he believed in an, in, in, uh, what did I, I forget the term, but it was, there was no one who was married to anyone else. It was community marriage. And you would have to interview to, and they did, they practiced eugenics where they wanted to match people up to have a pure race. I mean, they were funky. So yes, this has been going on. But here's what happens when you're given freedom. And it's been designed by, as we've already gone through the history of this, where you're given freedom in the First Amendment by those who came with a biblical standard, understanding that we're created in the image of God, endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights. They lay this down with this principle of understanding based on the Noetic Covenant, understanding that government is appointed by God, that He is the sovereign of all creation, but He has given man dominion over the earth so that we're the sovereign. They create this system of government never before seen on the face of the earth. But as John Adams said, only a republic... Uh, only a moral people can, can, can maintain a republic. So if the church fails to declare that the principles taught in the scriptures apply to the culture and that the church steps into culture like Milo and, and Guy are, then yes, in the vacuum we create, you will get a myriad of John Humphrey noises and everybody else coming in because we are a trichotomy, body, soul, and spirit. We connect physically, we connect you know, intellectually, but spiritually in the, in the void we create by this, the emptiness of whatever we're espousing that doesn't speak to every area of our life, people abandon it. And the church has become a one note. And they think that, that the gospel salvation is raising your hand. And that's great. We want to make it personal, but we don't think it's cultural. And it doesn't affect our government, doesn't affect our arts and entertainment, doesn't affect media, doesn't affect family, doesn't affect politics, doesn't affect religion, doesn't affect business. It does. It does. But until we engage, we're creating the vacuum so that anyone else can fill it, and then you lose your republic. There's your answer. Oh, uh, yes. What is it here? Holy Father. No, that wasn't written by me. Okay, because I was going to say, I agree with probably 99% of it, mm-hmm. number one. Number two, I think Milo and, was it Brent, Brennan? Guy, Benson. Guy and Milo, uh, I think they're both so effective with themselves that they can even know the truth if they try. I don't think that... Is there a question in this? I, I've covered that, Agnes. I, I, I addressed it with Gail. I, 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 okay. Okay. What's your question? I addressed that. I, I, I pointed out justification, sanctification. I laid that out. Um, I am not the arbiter of, of who is saved and who isn't saved. That's, that's the Lord. So... Uh, I didn't present that. Is there anyone here that feels as though I presented it that way when I clearly pointed out justification, oh, sanctification? I don't mean that. I'm just saying it was presented here, so I have to expound on it from my point uh, of view. Okay. Then I've received it. Thank you. Anything else? Anyone? Yeah? Back there? Are we going to allow a pick and choose Christianity to pull the wool over those of us who believe? It depends on uh, how the congregations support it. 
You know, if, if you want to go to a feel-good place and you don't want the tough things, you don't want to have conversations like this, then I'll preach the church down to a manageable size. But it's all dependent upon how you want to affect culture and engage in it. And people don't want to be uncomfortable. This is, this, nobody wants to be pushed to change culture. But, hey, Christianity by nature is not a subculture. It has always been and will always be a counterculture. And if we think that we're supposed to adapt... We're mistaken. There, there's no room for that. We're more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. Amen. We're not victims. So I saw a question over here, right here. It's a quick comment. I know you don't like these, but I had an enlightening moment many, many years ago. I was at an AIDS awareness class, and the group was a group of gays for Christ. I got to talk to these five, six guys, and they were admittedly gay, and they admitted it was a sin, and they were together as a group to handle that type of struggle. Yeah. So you're going to have a segment of the of the gay community that believes it to be they don't want the same sex attraction. They want to get rid of the same sex attraction. They and then you'll have another realm that says uh, uh, this this is uh, witch doctory. Uh, anyone who tries to to, you know, say that you're different than you are and, and you, you build both of these cases. So what happens is we have in our our fellowship uh, a psychologist who it's not re- restorative therapy. It is um, his, his father was the preeminent psychologist in establishing. There's only 15, I think, left in the world where if someone calls up and says, you know, I was molested when I was uh, 15 years old by, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a male. I was molested at 15 years of age by a school teacher, uh, imprinted in me as same-sex attraction. I, I, don't, I don't want it. I want to get... He has had an unbelievable success rate. It's not shock therapy. It's not bizarre behavior. But he has to go under the radar because the minute anyone in the, in, in the opposing view does it, fascistly, they're shut down and there's no dialogue in a, in a society that declares religious freedom and this ability of exchange of ideas. And, and that's indoctrination, not education. And, and, you know, if you have a child that, is, that has been molested and is under the age of 18 and says, I, I am struggling with the same sex attraction, I didn't have it before, but ever since this whole incident occurred and I want it to go away, it would be, it's unacceptable in the state of California for anyone to address that and to work them through that process. So is that a free exchange of ideas? And, and this, is, this is where, as a culture, do the Baronel Stutzmans have to go? And, and, and you see Guy Benson and you see Milo Yiannopoulos fighting for that. And yet the Christian community, at very few know that this person exists in our community nor supports them. So, yeah, that's an interesting aspect. It's 8 o'clock now. Um, is it a simple question, comment? It's probably not. Okay. <laughs> well, then, because I, I wanted to close by saying, uh, when I, oh, back here, yeah? So the question is, um, education, not indoctrination. 
wasn't it Milo Yiannopoulos who was not permitted to speak at Berkeley? Yes. When most any place he goes, there's either a riot or a revival, kind of like the Apostle Paul. Yeah, it burned down. Uh, Berkeley went up in flames. There was all kinds of issues. And there's this idea of suppressing the free exchange of ideas. And the people that are on the front lines doing it are folks that have been a minority that have been oppressed and now coming to defend those because it's in vogue now that Christians... Uh, today I was with a, a man uh, who attends our fellowship. Uh, he's a coroner by trade, a doctor um, and, and from England. Uh, and the entirety of his life, he was an atheist. He has come to Christ and is so excited about his newfound faith. And he is saying that all of my friends in England ridicule me. And it's, it's like the hot topic to pick on a Christian because they're an easy target. And he finds it. He goes, I used to be that guy. And it's the silencing of a free exchange of ideas that we'd have the audacity to believe this to be real and to stand upon it. And it does transform culture, but the idea is to suppress it. Be afraid. Well, as I check, 2 Timothy says, God hasn't given me a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and a sound mind. And, you know, we're more than conquerors. I love those things. And really, as a Christian, and you, you may not subscribe to Christianity, I would just say this to you. If someone threatens me to kill me, you know what they're threatening me with as a Christian? Heaven. I mean, it's, I, I'm immortal until God's finished with me. And, and I imagine they pick this up and they run it through, and I'll, I'll be ridiculed in the... It's a free exchange of ideas. We're trying to dialogue and communicate here. And here we are. I, what do you have to share? Isn't this, isn't this joyful? So uh, go ahead. I, I shut you down and I gave my wife precedent, and that's what I'll always do. No, I understand. My sister, my sister's a lesbian. I, I get it. And the thing is, with this whole AIDS thing, I mean, I, I can understand how they want to be monogamous. I, I would, if I were gay, I, I want, I would, I want one partner. So what we're going to cover next week, that'll be an encouragement to you, is, and, and this can be intense, and I'm going to have to do a lot of homework because you're going to beat me up good. But what we're going to do next week is. One of the things in the human race that we all long for is intimacy, that we, we want to be connected to another human being. And so in this process of what, what Augustine called the libido dominandi, and we look at this, and that's where we're going to look at Genesis 9, for, for human beings to connect and to have that intimacy, we, we all want to love and be loved. But there's an aspect to it that's very necessary, and I'll cover that next week. I, I understand your empathy. I have the same. My sister sat right where you're sitting, and she is, she's been a, a, a practicing lesbian her entire life, still is, and, and she got married and now is separated from, from her spouse, and she had received Christ, and she's, she's just all over the map and struggling. And she's reconnected with all the other siblings in the family but me. And I've reached out to her, we've talked, but there's still some tension there. I get it. 
And there's a part of her that deeply loves me and another part of her that I just don't even want to have that conversation with you. And, and, but she's drawn to my family. She's drawn to me. But she's just, it's just so remarkable. She wants the intimacy of our family. She loves all of our kids. I get it. I get it. But this is the idea of the free exchange of ideas. You want to talk about race relations? It, race relations means we're related. This is, this is the idea that we talk to each other. You step into that world and get to know folks. And the reason why your heart is melting is because they stepped into your world and they, they loved on you and they had empathy. And, and I, growing up, I remember a, a gay couple that my mom met at Lord and Taylor and we called them, you know, uncles. I had no idea what gay was at that age. And it was, they were, I always just thought they were really good decorators. But, but it was, you know, it's just one of these things that you, you process in life and the civility of it is so necessary to have the free exchange of ideas and communicate this. So I get it. I get it. And thank you for sharing that part of it. Um, you guys want to hear one last story before we call it a night? Okay. So I was running for the state assembly. And uh, there's a, a, a branch of the Republican Party called the Log Cabin Republicans. It's a homosexual uh, realm of the, of the Republican Party. And they asked me, a right-wing evangelical fundamentalist minister, running for state assembly to come and speak um, at their gathering. It was over at the Tipsy Goat. <laughs> I walk in, and the first thing is, uh, the fellow that I connected with, his name was Matt, and he said, uh, he said, you want a scotch? And I knew it was a scotch tasting, and I said, sure. And that kind of floored him. It'd be all things to all men, might win some. Some of you are going to leave the church because the pastor drank scotch. Well, I'm Scottish, so back off now there. <laughs> so I, I, I take a sip, and I go, oh, that's, a, that's an 18-year-old McCallum. He goes, How, how'd you know that? I said, because I'm Scottish. You know, and and, and that, that opens up the dialogue. So we started communicating, and a couple sips, and that was about the extent of it. And the person who spoke before I did... Um, was the highest-ranking member of the Bush administration and was involved in uh, foreign policy in very high level. And if I said the name, you'd know the person. And they began to speak, and they said, I come from a very strong Christian family. Uh, my brother's a minister. Um, and, and as they had done kind of a pseudo-introduction before, saying who were going to be speaking, uh, his comment was, I would never ask Pastor McCoy to officiate my marriage and would never put him in that position to... to compromise his clerical commitment. I would never do that to my brother or anyone else because I respect his freedom as he respects mine. And he started to share about uh, the Muslim world, uh, the Middle East. He started going through all the aspects. He said one of the most abused populace is the Arab Christians. The Jews hate them. The Western Christians hate them. They're suspect of them and they're being annihilated and wiped out. And there's there's a massive Holocaust happening of Arab, Arab Christians are just being decimated in the 1040 window longitude and latitude. He does a brilliant presentation. He concludes, and then they introduce me, and everyone's sitting there, and there's an older man with his younger boyfriend, and they're looking at me, and they're all staring at me, and they're hugging on each other, and, I, and they're just really trying to get a reaction out of me. And I, I walk up, and I said, you know, um, I want to share with you that... Um, the, the introduction and then the previous speech of the man that spoke about Arab Christians, I said... I look at the homosexual community um, illustratively as Arab Christians. I didn't know what I was saying. I said, I'll give you an example. I bet you it was easier for you to come out gay than it was for you to come out conservative and gay. And they all just erupted in applause. 
And I said, and the conservative community hates you and the gay community hates you. And they all erupted in applause. I said, just like Arab Christians. I said, but I wanted to share with you that you believe in free market and capitalism. You believe in the Constitution. You believe in the, the, the Declaration of Independence and the First Amendment. And what my friend just previously shared is a realization that he protects my liberties. And I want you to know that you are on the cutting edge of culture and contending with the cutting edge of culture that's trying to move us to a fascist bend to indoctrinate, not educate. And I said, you are the greatest hope for the Christian church if you will stand and defend us as you're watching Guy Benson and Milo Yiannopoulos. Now, I disagree with your positions, probably many of them, and many of them we come in unity, and I shared the story about my sister, and I'll close with this. My sister Gretchen had asked me to officiate her wedding. I said I couldn't. It's against my religious beliefs, and it would violate my, my ordination, and I can't do it. And she was giving me a gift. She wanted to bless me with it. Well, that was of great offense to her, and we stopped talking, and she was finished with me. She didn't know what to do with her younger brother, just frustrating. So my mom's dying. She's got lung cancer. She's in the hospital. My dad's in a home with Alzheimer's. You've heard the story. Some of you haven't. We, all four of the kids had to get together. I'm the youngest. My brother's the oldest. My two sisters are in the middle. I'm the youngest by six years. We have to gather at my sister Nancy's house to discuss what we're going to do with mom and what we're going to do with dad because it looks like mom's going to die. But before we meet at my sister's house, my brother and I go and meet my father at the rest home. He has Alzheimer's. He's had it for 15 years. He died two years ago. We get there and my dad is slumped over and he's just in the deep stages of Alzheimer's. He doesn't speak anymore. And I sit next to him in a love seat out in the garden and I hold his hand. He has the most beautiful hands. He was a, a, a carpenter um, just as a skill, but he was a Navy, naval officer. And he just had beautiful hands. And I'm holding his hands and they had just shaved him and cut his hair and he smelled so good he had been bathed. And my brother, he would do this with whoever he traveled to visit my dad with. He'd do the same thing. He pulls a chair up right to my dad's face, pulls it up, and he lifts my dad's head. And he says, Dad, I'm Lauren. Can you say Lauren? Dad, I'm Lauren. Now my dad doesn't talk, and it's an irritation, and it frustrates me because it, I'm just, I feel like it's abusive to my dad because you want him to say your name because you're the oldest and you need the blessing. I, I was just irritated. And while he's going through this, I'm Lauren. Can you say Lauren? My dad squeezes my hand. And I just loved it. And Lauren keeps doing it. And my dad squeezes my hand again. I'm like, I get it, dad. Well, he finishes his attempt to get my dad to say something. And it's time to go for the inevitable meeting. And I hadn't seen my sister in a while. So I give my dad a kiss. He smells so good. Hug his warm neck. And he just smelled so good. And his hand, I just loved it. I say goodbye to my dad. My brother and I got in the car. We get to the house. We sit down. My my, my brother's, no, my brother's here, my sister Nancy's here, my sister Gretchen, the lesbian's right here, it's directly across from me. I'm the only one on this side of the table. My sister Gretchen is in charge of my mother's financial directives. Nancy's in charge of her health directives. Lauren and I are left out of the situation. Fine, I get it. And my sister goes from zero to angry. She goes, you don't love mom. You don't love dad. You don't love me. You don't love anyone in the family. You're more concerned with your church. And she just, and just lighten into me. And my brother and my sister are scooting away from the nuclear explosion and just, she's just lighting me up. And I'm letting her vent because it's been a while and she's got a lot to get off her chest. I'm just sitting there. And a gentle answer turns away wrath. And as I'm sitting there praying, I said, hey, Gretch, dad talked to me today in the middle of her rant. She goes, he doesn't talk. 
And my brother goes, I was there. He didn't say anything. And I look at my brother. I go, he did, but you weren't listening. And Gretchen, who loves my dad, says, what did he say? I said, well, you know when Lauren does that mantra, when he says, I'm Lauren, can you? And both my sisters are like, yeah. I said, well, this time he was doing it. I was holding dad's hand. And Lauren kept doing it. Dad squeezed my hand not once, but twice. And I know he said something to me, Gretchen. I wanted to tell you what it was because I, I hugged him and I kissed him. He smelled so good. And this is what he said to me. And he said it not just to me, but to, to both you and me. She said, what? He said, Rob, Lauren wants something from me I can no longer give him. And he's missing the things I can give him. A hand to hold, and a cheek to kiss, and a neck to hug. And I said, Gretch, there's some things you'll never be able to give me to affirm me as a right-wing evangelical fundamentalist minister, and there's much I can't give to you, a left-leaning liberal lesbian. But I've never missed your birthday. You know I love you. There's so much that we have in common. Where she started crying. I did too. It changed everything. A man with Alzheimer's taught his kids a very profound lesson. Now, I had to listen and let her vent, and I could have been offended, and I could have responded, and a gentle answer turns away wrath, a word fitly spoken, apples of gold and settings of silver. But this is, the, this is the nation we've been given. And when Gretchen would walk out with me in the back parking lot, and she would be upset that I said something about homosexuality, I said, isn't it nice that we can have this conversation in the back parking lot without either of us being thrown off a building? It's education, not indoctrination. It's a free exchange of ideas. Those guys, even though I oppose much that they, are, they believe, are defending that. It's bizarre to me. And we are watching a vacuum we've created because of our unwillingness to engage the culture for the free exchange of ideas. And we can't defend them because we don't really know them. That's why we're doing 50 weeks, 52 weeks of biblical literacy. The founders understood the scriptures. So, that's my story. It's 8.15, I went long. Thanks, everybody. God bless you guys. Valentine's Day, we're covering sex. (laughs) 